Popular Podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. My name is Greg, and this is episode 265, A Sinner, A Saint, and a Bavarian. Now, this isn't my 265th episode, but Benedict was the 265th Pope, and this mini is as close to an episode on him as you're probably going to get from me because although it's likely I will cover some topics adjacent to him, I don't intend to formally include the most recent popes, uh, St. John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis, in the main show, because this is a papal history podcast, not papal news. Though, heck, maybe I will do papal news at some point. My apologies to those expecting this to be a proper full episode, given that uh, today, or well, at this point yesterday, uh, was a solemnity, um, epiphany. I did mention that an epiphany episode would probably not be happening at the end of my last episode, but I know not everyone sticks around for those kind of endnotes, and uh, oh, it looks like I never got the show notes set up for last episode. I'll uh, fix that eventually. Now, since I've already established that this isn't an episode of the main show, let's talk a bit, and I do mean a bit, this isn't going to be comprehensive, about Pope Emeritus Benedict. May he rest in peace. It's no secret that the Pope Emeritus was pretty conservative generally, and it's also no secret that I'm not generally a conservative guy myself. As you might guess, I didn't agree with Pope Emeritus Benedict on everything, but you may be surprised to know that I was sympathetic to his love of the old Latin Mass and the traditional liturgy, which was one of the hallmarks of his papacy best summed up in his July 2007 Motu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum, which revitalized the Vetus Ordo. I'll link that in the show notes, along with Pope Francis's July 2021 Motu Proprio Traditionis Custodes that abrogated it and greatly restricted the Vetus Ordo once again. If you're lost, circle May 28th on your calendar, because I will be covering the liturgy wars of the last few generations in detail in episode 0.31, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And yes, my Pentecost episode does actually line up with the Feast of Pentecost, so you can see why I'm eager to not let the overall schedule slip. For those real number crunchers out there, yes, there is going to be a swarm of episodes somewhere between March 19th and May 28th. That's called Easter because every day in the octave of Easter is a solemnity by definition. So in addition to preparing for Baby Gabe and getting the episode I was originally planning for today ready, I'll be using the next few months to get all those episodes prepped as well. But enough about me. I was talking about Benedict, and I don't want to stop talking about Benedict before I acknowledge the elephant in the room, the shadow over his papacy so fundamental that while I personally believe he was telling the truth when he stated the reason for his resignation, I don't blame folks who suspect there was more at play. I'm not talking about the liturgy wars, as much as some folks may like to blame them for Pope Benedict's 2013 decision to become Pope Emeritus Benedict. And unfortunately, I do need to bring out my PG-13 warning here, because this particular elephant abused minors. 
Do you remember that little reflection I put out in October 2021 when I had the podcast take that first step back to life with the launch of monthly development diaries? A reflection on Pope St. John Paul II, in which I admitted I have a hard time with his canonization because of the Father Maciel case. Maciel was a true monster. I'll simply link his wiki in the show notes, and you can go from there if you really want to. Well, ultimately, it was Cardinal Josef Ratzinger's job, as Prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, to investigate the accusations against Father Maciel, and yes, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger would go on to become Pope Benedict, and then Pope Emeritus Benedict. Depending on who you ask, he either deserves an applause for this work, that's Pope Francis's opinion, or, to put it lightly, he really dropped the ball. By way of example, his name was on a reply to a 1989 letter that outlined alarming accusations against Father Maciel, a letter that literally asked why nothing had been done. And nothing was done in 1989, just as nothing had really been done in any of the years since the Vatican's first evidence in 1943. An alarming date, confirmed by Brazilian Cardinal João Bras de Aviz, head of the Church's Congregation for the Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. To quote Bras de Aviz, We've been covering this for over 70 years, and it has been a tremendous mistake. End quote. Now, I don't want to overlook the fact that after the 2005 death of St. John Paul, the newly elected Pope Benedict began to publicly act like there was a problem, which was certainly a step up from the status quo of the previous six decades. Again, by the Vatican's account, they had had, at the very least, warnings about Father Maciel since 1943. You know, back when Ratzinger was a teenager. But starting to publicly act like there is a problem is different from actually addressing the problem, and this was a very limited start. Pope Benedict required the octogenarian Maciel to retire from active duty in 2006, but did not take further action at that time. For example, though I would very much prefer not to, I am still referring to him as Father Maciel, as he was never laicized. Father Maciel died in 2008. Legionaries of Christ, the widely popular religious order Father Maciel had founded, in case you are wondering what gave a mere priest such apparent untouchable status at the highest levels, anyways, the Legionaries of Christ were reorganized, and to their credit, they have distanced themselves from their founder. In 2007, the Vatican released its members from their vows not to criticize their superiors, and in 2009, an apostolic visitation, which is Vaticanese for an audit, was undertaken. Nowadays, as I understand it, the order, along with their umbrella group, Regnum Christi, is mostly normal, except for needing to do things like publicly acknowledge that their founder sexually abused 60 children, which they did in 2019. Seriously, the guy was like a season finale of SVU. Obviously, Father Maciel's sins were his own doing, and he is the one most accountable for them before God. His case challenges my universalist tendencies. As nice a thought as it would be in some ways to imagine hell empty, I don't hate the thought of Father Maciel spending this cold winter day and the rest of eternity somewhere very, very warm. 
Perhaps he was the victim himself. Perhaps not. Certainly, abuse tends to create abusers, and it seems very likely that there were those abused by Father Masael among the next generation of abusers of minors in the legionaries. His sixty were accompanied by 115 other acknowledged cases within the order, after all. And, of course, a link to that report is in the show notes. Okay, so leaving my half-hearted attempt at some kind of explanation short of pure monstrosity for Father Masael there, monsters don't get to be priests and found religious and lay orders without the Vatican's say-so. You can make a case for this whole deal as a stain on every pontificate since Pius XII with that 1943 dated warning on their files. But Pius XII was famously either really busy with other things during the Second World War, or really not busy enough with other things during the Second World War, depending on your take. Either way, at that stage it would have been a quiet, and almost certainly overlooked, credit to Pius if he had acted. But it festered under Pius, then under John, then under Paul, then under John Paul, then under another John Paul, by which point it was undeniable. Formal charges against Father Marcel were filed with the Holy See by nine men, nine priests, in 1998, claiming he had abused them as youths, and we saw nothing was done until 2006, when Pope Benedict forced Father Marcel into a late retirement. I don't think you can call it an early retirement, when the man was at least 85 by that point. So, taking the 1998 formal charges from the nine priests as the point of this really should have the Pope's attention, and really that, uh, that point should have been earlier, but I'm simplifying, was this Pope St. John Paul II's fault, with Benedict acting in a praiseworthy but unseen way in the background, as Francis seems to believe when he says that Ratzinger's actions as cardinals were worthy of applause? I mean... I guess you can think that, but considering when Benedict became Pope, the situation didn't change dramatically, it's hard to believe he was doing his best, but was simply being held back by the few men in the church more powerful than himself. Plus, if you really thought someone had prevented you from carrying out justice against a monster, would you be in a rush to canonize that person? Because, keep in mind, it was Benedict who fast-tracked John Paul II's canonization process. If he really thought justice had been obstructed here, I don't think that would have happened. In the end, I think the most reasonable conclusion is that neither John Paul II nor Benedict took things as seriously as they should have, given very little got done, though both certainly had the power. Do I take joy in bringing this up? No, not really. It's not a pleasant topic. But some things need to be talked about. And whenever we get to talking about the show's patron, Pope St. John Paul II, or Pope Benedict, we need to talk about Father Maciel, too. In part because, as I hear talk of more Santo Subito, sainthood now, or quickly, chance, folks seem in danger of forgetting. Okay. So I usually like to end on a more optimistic note than that. How about a show update? As you may have guessed, 
I've managed to get my foot a bit caught in the door at the end of my recent solemnity fest. In the end, family life will always take precedence, and there's a need for me to focus in on that on the next couple weeks. Conveniently, the church calendar is cooperating, as the next solemnity isn't until March 19th, the Feast of St. Joseph, as I mentioned last episode. So, the next episode will come out somewhere between now and then. You can picture Jesus aging in the meantime, if you like, because the next time we have him on the scene, he will have gone from a boy of 12 to a man of 30-ish. He'll also undergo the traditional voice change expected of maturing young men, sounding a lot less like me and a lot more like our own personal Jesus, my buddy Isaac, who has been introduced several times, but who got less than a day's notice for last episode because I had honestly forgotten Jesus had a speaking role in Luke 2. I'll go ahead and splice in his work for that previous episode when I give it show notes. So if you want the latest and greatest, be sure to re-download Op.18 when you see that it has show notes. Just remember to actually re-download it rather than simply hitting play again, or you'll most likely just get the old version. Alright, one more thing, and I promise this isn't a paid plug, but if you're unhappy with your current podcast player, Roberto of the History of Sacratvelo, Georgia, and Tsar Power tipped me off to a podcast app that I'm loving much more than my old one. It's called Podcast Addict. Seriously, I love it, and I highly recommend it. It's not the simplest, so if you're brand new to this, maybe stick with whatever got you this far. But if you want something a bit more robust, yet still free, I'm telling you, get Podcast Addict. As a thank you for telling me about it, links to Roberto's shows are in the rather crowded show notes for this mini-episode. And with that... Which is the closest thing to a commercial you're going to hear on this feed? I bid you adieu. Thanks for listening. God bless you all.